0: This week, Hertz further incentivizes bondholders to waive make whole claims. Mallinckrodt Court pushes off ACTHAR trustee motion and asset-stripping claims to confirmation hearing. And Eagle Hospitality Court considers whether allegedly fraudulent PPP loans are bankruptcy crimes. Hello and welcome to the New York Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high-yield, distress debt, and bankruptcy. I'm David Zubkis. Julian Bouloun will be joining me for this week in review. This week we'll be revisiting a recent REORG exclusive webinar where REORG's Mark Fisher, Kevin Eckhart, and Wing Lee discuss certain REIT subsectors and how companies have restructured capital structures in light of reduced revenue caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. It's Friday, May twenty-eighth. <laughs> On Tuesday, the setters announced changes to the rights offer procedures that would incentivize unsecured bondholders to exercise subscription rights prior to confirmation. Eligible bondholders who agree to waive their make hold claims and exercise their rights by a new June 7 initial deadline would be entitled to exercise up to double their pro-rata share of any subscription rights available to eligible bondholders rather than the pro-rata limit applicable to bondholders who elect after the initial June 7 deadline but prior to the final June 15 deadline. Early exercising bondholders would also have their orders filled prior to bondholders who missed the early election deadline. The pre-confirmation June 7 early election deadline is important because an election to participate in the rights offering requires a bondholder to irrevocably waive potential make-hole and post-petition interest claims. Counsel to the ad hoc bondholder group has indicated it intends to pursue the make call and post-petition interest claims at confirmation scheduled for June 10th.
1: At a hearing on Wednesday, Judge John Dorsey granted the Mallinckrodt debtor's request to adjourn a June 8th hearing on the City of Rockford private Okthor plaintiff's renewed motion to appoint a trustee until a currently unscheduled confirmation hearing. The judge agreed with the debtors that the issues raised by the plaintiffs in the trustee motion are largely confirmation issues, and that, quote, if confirmation is denied, then there are issues about whether a trustee should be appointed, end quote. The debtors on Tuesday night filed a supplemental motion seeking approval of a proposed confirmation timeline should their much-criticized disclosure statement be approved. The proposed timeline contemplates a voting and plan objection deadline of August 16th at 4 p.m. Eastern, with a confirmation hearing to follow on August 27th at 10 a.m. Albert Chardy, counsel for the plaintiffs, argued on Wednesday that the judge should at least consider whether the debtor's alleged failure to investigate and pursue $14 billion in transfers quote unquote upstreamed out of Mallinckrodt ARD, the primary Akhtar selling debtor and other specialty brands debtors justifies appointment of a trustee before taking up confirmation of the plan. According to Chiardi, this quote unquote asset stripping benefited opioid claimants and unsecured guaranteed noteholders as well as management, which would receive 10% of reorganized equity under the plan. Chardy also stressed that the debtors continue to market Akhtar in violation of federal antitrust laws, which Chris Harris of Latham & Watkins, counsel for the debtors, vehemently denied. The judge has set a status conference for June 14th at 11 a.m. Eastern to consider rescheduling the trustee motion should the DS not be approved. In a hearing this week in the Eagle Hospitality cases, Judge Sanchi considered
0: an adversary complaint brought by the debtors in connection with an allegedly fraudulent Paycheck Protection Program loan taken out by the debtors' former directors and certain entities under their control. The debtors alleged that Taylor Woods and Howard Rue, the debtors' former directors, caused one of the debtors to take on a $2.4 million PPP loan even though they had no authority to act on behalf of the debtors and then immediately transferred their PPP loan proceeds to a non-debtor entity under their control and spent the funds for their own benefit. The debtors had sought a preliminary injunction against Wood, Wu, and entities under their control, seeking to freeze $2.4 million in funds under their control. Although Judge Sanchi denied the request for a preliminary injunction because there was insufficient evidence that the debtors risked suffering irreparable harm without the injunction, Judge Sanchi said that based on the evidence before him, there was an overwhelming likelihood of success on the merits of the underlying complaint. Judge Sanchi added that the defendant's victory on the preliminary injunction was, quote, and that he believed it was perfectly clear that the defendants had engaged in behavior that was beyond the pale, reprehensible, and a violation of the public trust. Judge Sanchi said that given the actions of the defendants appear to have been purposeful and fraudulent, he was considering referring the matter to the U.S. Attorney's Office for further investigation of potential bankruptcy crimes.
1: This week, Reorg subscribers were treated to some premium content discussing the brewing make-hole fights in the closely-watched Hertz and Mallinckrodt Chapter 11 cases, and a waterfall quantifying proposals in the continued negotiations on the Intelsat plan. In Hertz, an unsecured bondholder group unhappy with its push from fulcrum to unimpaired cash-out has indicated it will fight for full payment of quote-unquote every iota of make-hole and default-rate post-petition interest claims at confirmation, with confirmation objections due June 1st. In Mallinckrodt, First lien and second lien note holders have pressed their entitlement to make-hole premiums as the company heads towards a June 8th disclosure statement hearing. Our coverage looks at comparable make-hole disputes in PG&E and Ultra, and also examines the various approaches to the calculation of make-hole payments, including whether the appropriate post-petition interest rate should be the federal judgment rate, the state law judgment rate, or the contract default rate set in the applicable indenture or credit agreement. In Intelsat, the Debtors and Jackson Crossover Group have traded competing plan proposals after the Jackson Crossover Ad Hoc Group and Holdco creditors publicly critiqued plan recoveries. The waterfall analysis compares recoveries of each proposal and quantifies the key differences. If you are interested in accessing REORG's in-depth coverage of these stories, please reach out to a REORG sales representative.
0: Top Red stories this week included, make fights may soon take center stage in Hertz of Malincrot. parties face a choice between settling or litigating uncertain certain enforceability determination. Judge Dorsey gives and to DS objectors, co-op reorganization problems in Brazos, and structured dismissal strikes back. GTT restructuring talks intensify amid debate over post reorg equity splits, leverage terms still to be finalized. Carlson travel bondholders split to two groups. Creditors consider options. And now here's Jim from Houston with The Week Ahead.
2: Well, good morning, folks. Hope you enjoy the long weekend and you'll be pleased to
3: know that the plant ain't going to be full when you return. Some of the highlights include Mariah Del Norte Wind Farm here in Texas and Citigroup Energy have a preliminary injunction evidentiary hearing on Tuesday, June the 1st. Of Nanny and the Home Builder has earnings on Wednesday, June the 3rd, and there is also a status conference in Hertz. June 4th, there's a pretrial conference in Suffolk County related to the opioid litigation, and that is it from me. If you want more details, please see our weekly forward released bright and early the first business day of every week, and back to y'all in New York.
0: And next up... An exclusive REORG webinar where REORG's Mark Fisher, Kevin Eckert, and Wingley discuss how REITs have dealt with the COVID 19 pandemic and potential reasons why certain REITs have avoided bankruptcy and how REITs have used the bankruptcy process to fix their balance sheets.
4: Good morning. My name is Mark Fisher. Uh, today we'll discuss REITs, real estate investment trusts. The topic is REIT options, discussing out of course solutions versus Chapter 11 restructuring. And joining me on today's webinar are Kevin Eckhart, senior legal analyst from America's Core Credit, and Wing Lee, corporate credit analyst also from America's Core Credit. Please note that if you'd like to access this webinar again later, a replay with slides will be available on the REARG Media page later today for REARG clients. So here's the agenda um, think, about, think of this webinar as a series of case studies across a number of REIT sectors. We'll compare and contrast hotel REITs, small REITs, and also discuss Geo Group, a prison REIT. And we will look at companies and sectors that were able to avoid Chapter 11 and how and discuss the experiences of debtors that were forced to file for Chapter 11. Right, next slide, please. Uh, starting with the hotel REITs, I'll uh, we'll go through Ashford Hospitality, Hersha Hospitality. Uh, this is sort of just a, an overview of what happened uh, during uh, the, uh, the, at the, or at the start of the pandemic. What are the options that the, or the actions that the REITs took and what are the options that uh, the lenders Uh, had both on balance sheet, off balance sheet. Uh, Of course, being in the hotel business during the pandemic, revenue dried up pretty quickly, cash flow turned negative before debt service. The hotel REITs were presented with this issue, um, but they acted fairly quickly. Ashford, which we'll discuss uh, soon, they suspended debt payments immediately, all the companies cut CapEx. Uh, this is one unique thing. they sold properties. So I think this is what was a little bit unique about the uh, the hotel REITs and uh, we'll go through this later, but compare and contrast this with uh, the mall REITs and some of the o- other um, REITs. But this was an area where they were able to uh, to generate some cash. Uh, the REITs cut dividends, uh, income went negative. Uh, so that flows through as a REIT. And then uh, they addressed uh, the permanent capital structure uh, Uh, making permanent fixes by extending maturities raising new unsecured debt Uh, again on the unsecured debt this is an option that um actually a lot of leisure companies had but uh, you know when you talk about the REITs um specific to the to the hotel REITs and um and obviously again contrasting with the mall REITs uh, this was an option that um, they were able to to have um, later on in the um, in the cycle the other um, thing and um, we'll discuss a, a little bit but um, it, to go through uh, investors thoughts about potential uh, upside in Ashford's case they continue to exchange uh, preferred Holders into into common as um, companies think about um, upside potential uh, as we work our way through uh, the the pandemic. Let me think about lenders separate them between the mortgage lenders uh, and the on balance sheet um, other on balance sheet debt uh, The mortgage lenders are at the property level they uh really, their options were either they uh, negotiated forbearance agreements uh, with the companies or they foreclosed or accelerated uh, loans on uh, for on balance sheet debt, uh, particularly secured debt. Uh, they, um, uh, they they in exchange for extending uh loans or providing covenant relief they required uh pay downs and you know if they weren't happy of course they could um, uh, accelerate too if the company was not paying or if there's a covenant violations next slide please so this is um what hersha uh hospitality did uh this um uh, this, this happened, or it, it culminated uh, last year. Early uh, this year, um, they extended um, their maturities. They did a series of transactions, as you can see summarized uh, below. But uh, in summary, in exchange for extending uh, extending debt and allowing uh, the company to uh, to borrow um, under their under their revolver. Uh, the the is required minimum $30 million um, of liquid assets, $150 million in net proceeds from asset sales, $75 in net proceeds from uh, some sort of subordinate debt, and that's subordinate to what uh, the secured debt, um, so in, in the case of Hersha, it was a uh, senior unsecured um, debt that they raised. And um, you can see that they exceeded those uh, targets by raising a $200 million unsecured note that was due in 2026 um along with uh 260 million of gross sale proceeds some of which have still yet to to close but the company said that they have um agreements in place on um on all of them next slide please so this is the resulting capital structure as you can see um here the company x the First extended the 2021 uh term loan, but then paid it uh paid it down. Next uh debt maturities are in um are in twenty twenty-two. And um really across the board, uh they paid down um uh the debt was reduced and was offset by a new unsecured uh note that paid nine and a half percent, half pick, half um cash pay due in, uh due in twenty twenty-six. Next slide, please. So this, this is the part that I think was unique for the Reefs They were actually, the hotel wreaths, they were actually able to sell assets. Um, one of the reasons why is just sort of, you know, speculating on this, aside from investors' belief that the sector will recover, these were not large tickets, you could sell off the assets one by uh one by one and this is whether or not they were part of a collateral package for secured debt or as uh, property level uh, debt is in the case of one of the uh the properties here and investors had an, a an option that, that bought it either they keep it as a hotel or there's some other alternative use which um is is definitely in contrast with um the uh the, the mall REITs next slide please so now going to Ashford. This is their um, their capital structure. Big difference here between Ashford and Hersha. Ashford's debt um, was really prior to uh, the Oak Tree loan, which we'll discuss in a second. It's um, all off-balance sheet property level um, mortgage loans. Three point seven uh, billions actually uh, was higher at the start of the um, the pan pandemic, but the number of um, foreclosures and accelerations uh, um, ended up in uh pay down or that so why is that um important what makes it unique is um they uh being at the the, the property level there were not too many there, there were no cross-default uh provisions until the um until the oak tree loan came into place and uh, as i'll show in the uh, the next slide what basically what, what what happened is the company um would um they received foreclosure notices from certain of the uh, the mortgage lenders, and on a one-off basis, those uh, loans were were dealt with um, through a number of options, mostly property sales or transfers to um, other uh, other equity sponsors. Next, next slide, please. So here's the uh, the result of of what happened. You can see most of these um, accelerations occurred throughout um, 2020. There was one um, that the company announced in their K, February 2021, um, 19.4 million of principal accelerated by Bank of America. But you could see the others throughout the year, um, they received um, uh, default notices or foreclosure notices from uh, from these lenders. Um, Interestingly, a lot of these loans you could see uh, were fairly high leverage loans higher than, um, than the company average. Um, it's possible that Ashford didn't um, negotiate as strongly on these because of that um, and let it go, but it's unclear exactly, um, you know the reasons why these were accelerated, certain other ones um, didn't, but uh, you know ended up um, selling and uh, most of these, uh, the lender, uh was 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 made whole um on these which probably gave um you know, lenders a little bit more confidence as well what led to this is what i had said earlier when the uh, pandemic started right in march um the uh, ashford immediately stopped paying um all debt service uh, principal and interest on um, on these loans and then um went into a series of discussions with um with with lenders uh, culminating in, in uh, the majority of cases uh, forbearance um, agreements um other agreements that um that delayed payment on these these interests and now ashford is um is paying it back uh with the proceeds of um of the loan that they received from uh from Oaktree. next slide please and here's that that loan uh, it's you know, a good way to describe it is, um, you know, trees receiving uh, equity like returns for um, uh, for this rescue loan unsecured um, delayed draw 450 million was actually upsized um, from the initial uh, announcement from um, by an additional 100 million 16% for the first couple of years on um, on the initial draw on the initial first delayed drawer. Tranche uh, dropping to fourteen um, percent thereafter. Uh, option to pick for the, uh, the the first couple of years, and um, you know as I had shown on uh, the early earlier slides, liquidity for these. This is a theme actually we saw throughout um, a lot of the leisure um, related names, and this is not just the REITs, This is any leisure um, related uh, company that and, and includes the um, the cruise lines. The uh, the airlines. It, it seemed like where these companies ended up, and they're they're really there now. Is you take the um, the cash peak cash burn uh, for these companies when you know revenue was really nothing um, before we had any sort of return. Lenders, creditors, um, or equity investors basically gave enough liquidity to uh, to last for about eighteen. Months um, and that was the case of um, of Ashford. If we uh, if we take their current liquidity and divide it out by um, by their peak monthly cash burn, it gives them about um, eighteen months worth of um, of liquidity. Uh, next, I'm going to pass it over to uh, Wing, who's going to go through the uh, the Mawari.
2: Thanks, Mark. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Wing Lee, corporate credit analyst for the Americas Core Credit Team. And today I will be talking about the mall rates. Um, So even prior to COVID and the pandemic, the mall rates has seen a secular decline. If you look to the chart on your left, uh, we have charted out PRE and WPG, the two mall rates that we cover, um, their revenue and their occupancy percentage. And as you see, even prior to 2020, from 2016 to 2019, the company has seen a decline in their revenue as well as their occupancy percentage. Um, if you look towards the chart on the right, uh, we have the mall the mall reads free cash flow. For pre, they've been generating negative free cash flow um, since 2016, and WPG has seen a sharp decline in their free cash flow. And the way we're defining free cash flow today is just simply looking at Uh, net cash from operations, less capital expenditures. Uh, Next slide, slide, please. So even um, with the secular decline, the mall rates have seen some additional headwinds, um, specifically um, the impact of COVID-19, where we saw cash selection rates bottom out at the end in the second quarter, and then recovering sequentially. Uh, For WPG, Washington Prime Group, the company collected approximately 87% of their third quarter rental income um, and 52% of their uh, rental income in the second quarter. The company did not disclose the collection rate in the fourth quarter, nor did they have a earnings call for us or for anyone to ask um, and inquire more about their um, uh, their outcomes. For Pre, um, they fared a little better. In um, April nineteenth, they had a disclosure, which they t- they disclosed that the company um, collected approximately one hundred and nineteen percent of their build rent in the first quarter of twenty twenty one. 112% of their fourth quarter build rent in 2020 in 2020, and 99% of the third quarter build rent. Um, and as far as we know, uh, the company only collected 53% of their uh, build rent in the second quarter. Um, in addition to uh, cash collection rates, the company had also seen requests for rent deferrals and rent reliefs from their tenants. And this is important because it affects the timing and the probability of the collection rates of the mall reads, which they which they need the cash to use to service debt um, for capital expenditures and to pay shareholders to retain their read status and that tax benefit that comes with the read status. Uh, next slide, please. Um, but unfortunately, one of the mall reads that we cover actually commenced uh, restructuring. Um, For Pre, they commenced an out-of-court restructuring November of 2020, um, and a summary of that uh, uh, restructuring is that they uptiered approximately $919 million of their unsecured debt to secure debt, and they pledged their current pool of unencumbered assets as collateral. In addition to to that, the company took on uh, more debt they obtained a new 130 million secured revolving credit facility, as well as higher interest rates for their newly uh, secured facilities. We did um, an exercise to calculate their interest expense calculation, um, where had the company not, sorry, where the company had kept the pre-petition capital structure, the company would pay approximately 68 million of uh, interest expense in 2021 and a total of 256 million projected after five years versus the post-petition where the company is expected to pay 62 million in uh, interest expense in uh, 2021. And then this total of 336 million projected after five years. This is mainly due to um, a, their, their, second lien, uh, senior, their second lien term loan which has an interest rate of pick 8%. And finally, the company reinstated their equity as part of their out-of-court restructuring. Um, next slide, please. Now we have a pre-capital structure. So, as you note, know, as you can see from the pre-petition to the post-petition to the end of the fourth quarter of twenty twenty, the net debt for pre hasn't changed at all, and and the only difference is the unsecured debt to secured debt. Um, With the addition with a higher interest rate. But one thing to notice is that the maturity rate for the new uh, secured facilities is now December 14th, 2022, which means that this is potentially a maturity wall for the company. Um, The company is also still highly levered, it has a 13.7 times net debt leverage ratio and approximately $147 million of liquidity at the end of the fourth quarter uh, next slide please so what does that mean for wpg the mall rate that has not filed yet um so i guess one first thing you can notice is that capital structure is very similar to pre prior to their outer court restructuring where a majority of their debt um, is unsecured Um, The company only has approximately $114 million of liquidity and their net uh, debt leverage ratio is pretty highly levered at 10.5 times. Uh, Next slide please. Um, So we at Reorg had actually put together a forecast of what we think the cash flow and the revenue and EBITDA of WPG will be going forward. And this is under the assumption that the company will not renew their uh, unsecured revolving credit facility at the end of 2021. And that operations um, and revenue will return to pre-COVID normal levels toward mid 2021. And, And the one thing we noticed is that despite having positive free cash flow, the company Will, have, will hit a maturity wall and have um, a liquidity need by the end of 2021, mainly due to that, un- to that unsecured revolving credit facility. Um, and even if they were able to get through 2021, the company has another maturity wall at the end of 2022 where their uh, unsecured term loan is due, and then another term loan that is also due in January of 2023 which told us approximately uh, almost 700 million dollars. Next slide please. However, Preet has tried to take some action to help uh, mitigate their liquidity issue. Um, One action that they took was that they elected to withhold an interest payment of 23.2 million dollars in February 2021 for their outstanding senior notes uh, due 2024. Uh, that forbearance period ends April 28th. The company also uh, tried to do a debt-to-equity exchange through a special purpose vehicle, which ultimately did not materialize. Um, the company tried to convert 259.3 million dollars of unsecured bonds to a new 175 million preferred equity, and essentially the company. Uh, was looking to create a a new co, where the JV properties sit in a box beneath it um, with 51% equity in 12 joint venture properties. Um, The special purpose vehicle was offering a higher, was offering a higher interest of 9% annum as well as a 5.7% per annum additional kick. And this allowed um, the unsecured holders to sit closer to the assets. Um, We also put together um, an analysis of the 12 unsecured, uh, sorry, the the 12 uh, JV properties, where we saw that the net leverage was 8.7 times, which is much lower than where the uh, current 2024 note holders sit, um, where they have a net leverage of 10.7. Um, And the company also, they did a property sale where they sold Westminster Hall for approximately $160 million back in uh, late 2020. Uh, Next slide, please. So what are some of the options for WPG moving forward? The first thing that we know is that in their 2020 10K, WPG disclosed that, quote, the restructuring may need to be implemented pursuant to a plan of reorganization to be filed in cases commenced under Chapter 11 of the United States Bankruptcy Code. So the company has already disclosed that uh, restructuring is, 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 possible, is a possibility, high possibility in the horizon. Um, some out of court options that the company could do um, is very similar to what Preet did, where the company could uptier its unsecured debt to secure debt using its remaining unencumbered properties as collateral um doing the proverbial kicking the can down the road um the company can also um material try to put back on the table the debt to equity sorry the debt to preferred equity exchange on the 12 joint venture properties or they can go through an in-court chapter 11 restructuring of their debt um next slide please finally um we a company that Reor covers the, the geo group announced that it would recover, it would reconsider its read status. This is something that we thought we would include because this was an option that one of the, the prison reads was considering. Um, and this could possibly be something that pre and WPG could initiate on, um, given you know circumstances. Um, but the comp, but the geo group paid out approximately 260 million. Um, As dividends to shareholders in 2020 233 million in 2019 and approximately 230 in 2020 Um, and what comes with the REIT status is that there is a special tax treatment. um, That these companies have, but if they give it up, they would have to. um, They would no longer be uh, under the protection of this special corporate tax law Um, now i'll turn it over to Kevin.
3: yeah as a child of the 90s it's hard for me to hear the words mall reits and not think of mall rats i'll try not to make that mistake while i go through Um, this discussion of chapter 11 cases and near chapter 11 cases involving these reits um, historically chapter 11 has not been utilized by many reits in the sort of mainstream mall, hotel, um, commercial property arena. Um, There have been just a couple, general growth was really the first one of the sort of modern non dead ball era of bankruptcy. Um, But we are seeing more and more of these companies go in and the the idea of what we're gonna discuss today is why they would do that and why they would try um, to stay out. Um, and And the key thing to keep in mind for these REITs in terms of chapter 11 or out of court as their decision for restructuring is the problem of consent. Um, the out of court deals that are proposed often require unrealistic levels of creditors, shareholder and counterparty consent. Um, these, this is because these companies have very complex organizational and capital structures that make agreeing on valuations Uh, consent and renegotiation difficult. They often have debt at the entity level. And we'll talk about uh, CBL shortly where that was a serious problem in addition to property level debt. Um, And that creates cross default problems that creates negotiating problems. And, And this issue is very different. We'll just note here for hotels and malls because as Mark pointed out, the hotels generally have their financing off balance sheet um and the malls that's a little more of a troublesome issue they often do have balance sheet debt and in cbl's case secured debt that creates a serious problem um, for reaching a consensual deal Um, these entities also will have unique collateral pools that sort of goes toward what i what i mentioned on entity and property level but also on a on a uh, property and entity level basis for example cbl had secured lenders that had liens on 23 of its malls um and and it had over 100 total properties so that unique collateral pool creates challenges for valuation and also challenges for consent and and putting together a deal there are often related party transactions involved uh, in re-deals there are management agreements um, often with insiders or related parties there are complex lease and sublease structures and then there are management agreements especially in the hotel arena uh, held by the flag brand of the hotel that have to be dealt with. So this this is also a difficult um, situation as, as we'll talk about. In addition for REITs, equity treatment is important. Um, REITs exist because they provide access uh, to equity markets for real estate investments through providing tax benefits. Um, REITs were created for the tax benefit, that's why they exist, that's how they draw money. And the, the sponsors, creators, managers of these REITs want to have continuing access to that pool of capital that's looking for tax-friendly investments. Um, Wing just mentioned Geo Group and dropping its REIT status, and, and one potential explanation for that and why it hasn't been mentioned by many of the other REITs is that as a prison REIT, they may not see future equity access being um, free to them. Um, speculation, but generally, these companies treat their REIT status as sacrosanct, and they wanna do whatever's possible to get the next deal done and get more funding for their existing deals um, through the tax friendly structure. The, the big problem is that the extend and pretend out of court model from the last probably 15 to 20 years in real estate cases where companies just sort of kick the can down the road does not address structural problems and especially in the mall context, um, a secular business decline. Um, and, and the malls have a worse structural problems and a worse business decline, but as we've seen, have a harder time shedding expensive assets than the hotel REITs. And thus it's it's a double problem for them. It's a bigger issue and, and more difficult to deal with. The key to chapter 11 is that it allows you in many different contexts, large scale litigation, um, environmental claims, and uh, in complex capital structure cases, it allows you to sort of generate consent and force parties that do not consent to go along with the deal. And, and generally parties will try to do an out-of-court deal and then they'll go to chapter 11 if they can't get consent and we'll see what happens then. Next slide, please. Uh, the the pre-chapter 11 we'll present is just an illustration of the difficulties of, of out-of-court restructuring for these entities. Um, Preet had a fairly a fairly straightforward pre-pack structure um, with a pre-petition solicitation and consent. As as Wing detailed, the essential element of this was an up tier of unsecured debt to secured debt, and they did not have a sizable uh, secured debt body at the at the parent level. So this seemed like a simple transaction. Um, the property level debt would be reinstated. And even the equity would be reinstated. So it was a very clean situation, but the problem was one holdout lender, SVP, acquired a 5% interest to extract out-of-court hostage value. Uh, Basically, they bought that interest knowing that they could block an out-of-court restructuring, although they could not block a Chapter 11 restructuring because of the cram-down structure and the consent required. So they basically acquired an interest to see exactly how much the debtors wanted to stay out of bankruptcy and how much they'd be willing to give the lenders uh, in order to do so. They were basically seeking 100% of reorg equity for the the unsecured lenders. Um, The company filed an 11 when they were unable to reach a deal, um, even though they'd reached a deal with essentially everyone else um SVP made an argument at the first day hearings that the the proposed plan was not feasible and they were setting up for a chapter 22 because as wing went through they didn't really reduce their debt burden very much and they created a massive maturity wall and increased interest payments um and eventually SVP reached a settlement with the debtors whereby the the new secured loans would have extensive and very specific financial covenants and again that reflects svp's diminished negotiating leverage in chapter 11 where consent is less of an issue and it also illustrates the difficulties for these companies in trying to get an out-of-court deal done without chapter 11's mechanisms for imposing non-consensual deals on holdouts next slide please okay well let's talk about cbl next and cbl is the big contested Chapter 11 that we've had in the REIT space so far. CVL was a a slightly unusual situation, again, compared to to Washington Prime and Preet because it had sizable secure debt at the parent level, at the above the property level, and and it was limited to 23 properties. And in the end, it was that parent debt that made an out-of-court restructuring impossible and ended up making even a Chapter 11 restructuring extraordinarily difficult. Um, so just walking through the facts because they, they are quite interesting. And if you have a chance to read about this case, there was a trial on the lender claims for three or four days. And they they did discuss a lot of this. And it's a good view into how these uh, restructuring negotiations work for these entities and how secured lenders approach them. In March, 2020, CBL took a 280 million defensive revolver draw. Um, Wells Fargo is the agent on that, that loan and the term loan. Um, that caused a potential liquidity covenant breach. They had a 100 million um, cash uh, cash stash limit. Um, they took out 280 million and they needed to spend 180 million of that down to beat the covenant and were only able to get down to 26 million by buying uh, long-term treasuries, which would not be cash equivalents under the loan agreements. Um, Wells Fargo went along with that, thinking that they were going to get down to 100 million. In April, uh, the majority of their properties were closed due to COVID-19. Tenants were not paying rent or expenses. They actually said they collected 27% of their cash rent for that month. Companies, retailers were filing for chapter 11 and rejecting leases. Um, the company summarized there was a significant deterioration in revenue. In May, Wells Fargo found out that the liquidity covenant had apparently not been complied with in late March, um, refused to waive the default when asked by the company in order for the company to avoid disclosing a potential default in its SEC filings. Um, and while and Wells Fargo uh, sent out a bunch of default notices. In June, the company skipped interest payments on its unsecured notes. The note holders retained while and the holders organized for balance sheet discussions. A forbearance agreement was was agreed at the end of the grace period in July. The note holders and Wells Fargo as the agent for the secured lenders were still discussing things and agreed, both agreed to the forbearance agreement. On August 5th, 5th uh, Wells Fargo essentially walked away from the forbearance agreement and the company made the interest payments at the expiration of that period to the unsecured creditors. The company said it was still looking for a comprehensive capital structure solution. On August 19th, the company entered into an RSA with note holders contemplating a parent company filing on October 1st, an up tier of the notes, similar to what happened in Preet, um, preferred common equity recoveries, so reorganized equity for the current holders to placate them, um, a placeholder treatment for the secured loans. Um, the agent Wells Fargo went absolutely ballistic at this point sent out a ton more default notices arguing that the RSA itself was a default under the secured facility. Um, The parties continued to discuss but on October 28th in a midnight raid, um, Wells Fargo sent direction letters to tenants at the collateral properties telling them to send rent directly to Wells Fargo and voted its pledged interests in the property level entities to take control of them and prevent them from filing for bankruptcy. Basically the nuclear collection option, uh, something you rarely ever see as the debtors repeatedly pointed out um, on the first day, something you rarely, very rarely ever see in these cases. But again, these secured creditors um, were the real fly in the ointment for the debtors. On November 1st, just a few days later and on one day before the uh, expiration of the forbearance agreement, the note holders, the company filed an emergency chapter 11, next page. So in the chapter 11, the the company faced another number of daunting issues, especially with the secured lenders. They had a filing problem. They wanted to keep the property level entities out to avoid having to restructure property level mortgages and debt and bankruptcy and to avoid uh, problems with leases with tenants, which I'll get to in a second. They had a litigation problem. Um, The agent of course claimed that the original liquidity covenant default had not been remedied, that the RSA was a default and that their pre-petition collection actions had effectively removed the property owning entities Um, which had filed from the bankruptcy case and removed the rents from those entities from the debtor's chapter 11 estate. And of course, those were substantial. Um, They had a cash collateral problem. They needed to be able to use the rents from those properties um, that were secured in order to maintain them, pay taxes um, and other expenses, especially since tenants were not always paying those and it required the lender or the, the landlord to go out of pocket. Um, So they had to provide adequate protection to the secured lenders who did not initially agree to it, and of course had tried to seize all those properties. So it was a very contested uh, cash collateral issue. And then they also had the ultimate confirmation problem. In December 2020, they filed a plan under which the secured creditors would get new notes with minimum interest, the absolute minimum required by law to be set by the court, with essentially no financial covenants, and no new collateral which is what the uh, secured lenders had been trying to get going into the case Um, that obviously created problems for getting a plan confirmed and and cramming up those secured lenders which we'll discuss a little more in a second they also had the property level lender problem they still had to deal with those property level lenders who they had not uh, might not have been paying they were current as of the bankruptcy date but we don't know what happened After the petition date, they needed to do extensions, maybe surrender properties. They had to treat those properties while at the same time getting consent for it in the Chapter 11 case from the the parties participating there. And they had to deal with potential Section 1111 B elections, not as much of an issue here because uh, many of the property level entities were kept out of the bankruptcy. Um, But bankruptcy lawyers love to mention section 1111B, the most baffling provision in the bankruptcy code. Suffice it to say, it creates some additional complications for debtors in treating secured claims in bankruptcy. They also didn't have a a final deal done with the note holders. They only had 57 percent on board and of course, you need two-thirds in bankruptcy. Um, They had offered them 50 million in cash plus 500 million in new unsecured notes. So There was the up tier exchange. Uh, and they offered them 90% of reorganized equity, which of course would also trigger lender confirmation, the secured lenders confirmation objections on the absolute priority rule and other issues, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, here, I'll just make a note that in uh, in out of court deals, one of the other problems that debtors face is the TUSA problem, where you have fraudulent transfer exposure when you grant new collateral on existing loans. So when you up tier unsecured loans to secured, and secure them with liens on special purpose entities that own one property that may have previously been unencumbered or encumbered only by mortgages, the creditors at those properties um, may challenge the transaction and try to eliminate um, the granting of liens on the property level entities that benefit creditors of the parent company. Um, The Tuesday case was a case in the Southern District of Florida where a, a judge blew up a real estate developer's SPE uh, uh, up tier securitized uh, refinance transaction into the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's something you have to think about out of court, not a problem in court. Um, They also had that equity problem we mentioned. Um, Companies want to maintain favor with equity if they're making income, uh, especially if they're not paying any debt during the bankruptcy case presumably they would have to make distributions to maintain REIT status because they have to distribute all of net income. Um, and then there's the treatment, the idea that <clears throat> even in, in cases where the debtors is insolvent, you want to find some benefit for equity holders to placate the markets and maintain access. <clears throat> Excuse me. Finally, there is in, in mall REIT cases and, and also in hotel cases, the lease problem. When you have properties that are subject to material leases and those the property entities themselves file for bankruptcy again, something they wanted to avoid here. Uh, to assume those leases, the debtors would have to provide adequate assurance. The party, the counterparties, could object, say a management company on a hotel, and <clears throat> excuse me, and force um, a complicated renegotiation in bankruptcy, better terms. So that's a problem for these companies in chapter 11, um, not much of a problem for CBL, because again, they kept the property level entities that had the leases with tenants out. Next slide, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so in CBL, the, the positions basically broke down between the debtors and the secured lenders. The debtors said there was no default under the, the secured facility, the collateral properties and rent stayed in the estate because the pre-petition collection efforts were pursued without a default and were not valid. They argued that the lenders were unsecured which triggered a potential property valuation fight, but nevertheless that they had sufficient adequate protection for cash collateral use. Um, The the adequate protection they proposed was that they were maintaining the properties and that the properties would uh, inevitably increase value when malls were able to reopen. So kind of a, a... a contradictory position, but one that is, is commonly taken with adverse secured lenders. They argue that the lenders would only be entitled to non-default interest rates at the court imposed rate in a cram up situation. Um, again, that ties back into the valuation issue. If the, the lenders are undersecured, they can receive, they only are entitled to receive the value of their secured claim. So if you write down the secured claim, they get less in interest, they get less other goodies. Um, They argued that the property level lenders and those leases would be unaffected, that there was value given for the note holder up tier in the form of an $800 million debt reduction um, and that there was no income. So no REIT distributions needed to be made the equity the equity recovery that they offered in the December 2020 plan was essentially a tip the secured lenders position was that there was a default the properties and rents were not property of the estate and therefore could not be used as part of the reorganization and again those were important properties and that was a substantial chunk of income that the property values were falling because malls and were not adequately protected that the new loans were not the indubitable equivalent of their existing secured loans again that that depends on a complicated valuation of those collateral properties and the secured claim they held as well as market rates of interest and, and the covenants that they would be entitled to. And they argued that there was too much value given for note holders or anything for equity because of the absolute priority rule. In other words that if they weren't if they were going to be impaired, their secured claim was going to be impaired, that the unsecured should not receive anything, the equity should not receive anything. Uh, they also could have been anticipated to make arguments of confirmation on feasibility and good faith, similar to the SVP argument, although not in uh, pre, although not quite as compelling because there was a substantial debt reduction proposed in CBO. Next slide. So here's how it came out. And here, here's what we've been building to and talking about this case is how chapter 11 allows a company to uh, force consent or at least force um, a more Even negotiation, um, than the out of court situation but also comes with costs. Chapter 11 allowed the debtors to resolve their secured lender problems through forcing an agreement on cash collateral and an immediate temporary restraining order barring the secured lenders from taking any further collection efforts. secured lenders are generally a worried and it's very rare for a court to reject even a non-consensual cash collateral arrangement so by pushing that the debtors um, were able to use to convince the secured lenders to use collateral um, that outside of bankruptcy they, they may not have been able to the debtors forced a quick trial and litigation on the default claims and on the property of the state issue with the collateral properties Um, through the bankruptcy case that would have been much faster than a district court trial outside of bankruptcy. Um, Judge Jones eventually uh, directed the parties to mediation and made comments at litigation regarding the secured lenders position on default that eventually convinced them to to put a halt to the trial, go mediate, and they reached a settlement and plan compromise. Um, it, It was that the secured lenders would receive new secured loans Um, similar to the debtor's proposal, but they would also receive market rates of interest and not court set rates of interest. They would receive limited covenants, limited additional collateral, and they'd get an immediate 100 million cash payment. Out of court, this would have been very difficult to achieve, though not impossible. It would have required the debtors to engage in costly litigation with the secured lenders. Um, during which time they might not have had access to the rents or the the products of the collateral properties that had been purportedly seized. Um, And it would have been difficult to use the bankruptcy judge's uh, leverage and deal-making authority to uh to get a deal done like this with those secured lenders in terms of property level problems we the debtors say they are currently working out deals with their property level lenders they have expressed optimism that they will be done with that process by the time it's planned. by the time the plan is ready to go effective this was not a huge issue for them there's a reason they didn't file the property level cases And that is because it's fairly easy to get a property level deal done um, outside of court because you don't have the consent problems. You have just a mortgage or or a mortgagee, excuse me, and it's a a much simpler process. The note holder RSA problem, they ended up garnering 69% support by offering 474 million in up tiered secured notes, 78% of equity and 80 million in cash. Um, Like I said, this would have also been difficult to get done out of court the 69% support may not have been enough um, depending on the indentures and the application of the Trust Indenture Act and other arguments that may get made outside of bankruptcy by holdout creditors. Some creditors may have walked in and bought debt just to nix that. Um, So there also would have been that TUSA problem I mentioned where if they did an up-tier exchange unsecured for secured, new liens on SPEs holding properties in exchange for loans made to the parent, they would have had potential fraudulent transfer to exposure. In terms of equity problems, they agreed to get with everybody to get 11% of reorg equity to preferred and common shareholders. That would have been extremely difficult to justify outside of bankruptcy, um, but they they used the the cudgel of bankruptcy procedures to get that to get something for equity holders. And the lease problem is not an issue because they managed through the deal with secured lenders. And the note holders to keep the property level entities out. So here, this is probably a deal that because of the presence of the secured lenders and their adamant adamant uh, And very aggressive litigation positions, it would have been very difficult to get this done out of court. It was very difficult to get it done in court. Let's move on to the next slide. So let's talk about Eagle hospitality because I wanted to talk about um, a hotel read and this is one of the few that's filed and and again as Mark was talking earlier, as I stressed, hotels have an easier time of doing out of court restructurings because of the prevalence of property level debt and the willingness of lenders to take properties back uh, and confidence in future income. Um, here, Eagle Hospitality filed because their consent problem was with insiders. Um, the reowned owned hotel properties all over the world uh, but they were effectively managed through leases by the insiders and managers of the REIT who stopped paying rent to property level lenders, uh, to property level entities, which made the entities unable to pay their lenders. They breached management agreements to run the properties and uh, and agreements with the flag hotel uh, brands to run the properties. And then they refused to surrender the properties after the debtors caused the property level entities to terminate master leases. Um, To resolve this out of court would have required extensive litigation with insiders, a long period of time during which uh, property level lenders and sometimes lessors like the city of Long Beach, which went after the Queen Mary II, would have continued their foreclosure proceedings and and made it very difficult to have a surviving company at the end of the the lawsuits. The lender problem they had was tied to the lessee and insider problem, and that's that um, the lenders had liens on equity interest in the property level entities and would not consent to liens on the properties themselves to secure additional financing unless an independent manager was appointed. They didn't trust management. They saw what they were doing and they said, we will not agree to give new liens for someone to come in and give new financing to keep this thing going um, while the litigation proceeded unless an independent manager was appointed. The company tried to to appoint an independent manager, but those very same shareholders voted against it uh, at a shareholder meeting, unsurprisingly. So out of court, outside of bankruptcy, it would have been extremely difficult for them to deal with the lease problems, both through litigation and um, through further financing that would bridge the gap for the company to continue operating while that litigation came through. So they filed to secure financing to cover expenses, um, which was secured by unencumbered properties. The lenders went along with that because a new manager was appointed without shareholder consent. Uh, something the bankruptcy court can do that you can get done in bankruptcy court without having to get um, shareholders to vote and approve it. They then sued the insiders and again, took advantage of the accelerated bankruptcy litigation timetable um, to recover properties and unravel all these complicated corporate arrangements, basically so the assets could be sold. Um, Long story short, this is a a rare example of of a mall wreath that filed but it is not an uncommon situation involving mall REITs and REITs generally where there are complicated management agreements, insider transactions, potential insider claims and lenders who are fed up and don't wanna deal with management anymore. So you you may see more of these. This is a good paradigm example of when an out of court restructuring doesn't work for a hotel REIT. Next slide. Oh, the next slide's the Q and A. So I will hand it over to Mark to ask some questions and stand by to answer any he feels like throwing at me. <laughs> Thanks,
4: uh, Kevin, uh, for that. And as Kevin mentioned, that does conclude the slide portion of our uh, presentation. One note from earlier in the presentation: uh, preets restructuring it was in court. Uh, we'll fix those. Um, we'll We'll fix those slides. So let us see what uh, is coming in. Uh, so first question we have, um, I'll just take uh, it's on Washington Prime, isn't there an extension option on the revolver? Yes, uh, there is. There's uh, They have the ability to extend for two six-month uh, periods, so it takes it out a year, but um, that is contingent on there being no uh, events of default, including uh, breach of covenants. Um, which, uh, aside from the interest payment last year, also they um, had to negotiate a waiver of um, of, of covenants um, that uh, that lasted for a couple of quarters. Uh, included in that um, was an adjustment to EBITDA that um, that ended and went back to the traditional definition um, by the uh, by the third quarter. Uh, so that's why we, um, we we assume that it needs to it needs to pay. Uh, next question. Wing, um you uh you had mentioned that pre pledged their current pool of uncumbered assets is as collateral to up to your subsecured debt. How much uh, an uncumbered value does Washington Prime have if it takes that route?
2: Thanks, Mark. Um so on a conference call, um, a Na- the NARI three world conference call, the CFO for WPG stated that the company's trailing 12 months. Unencumbered NOI was approximately 60 million, but half of that was used to secure its credit facility modification. Um, so, given that half, the company has approximately 30 million of unencumbered NOI. Um, it can offer up um, if it choose, if it tries to take that route.
4: Great, thank you, um, thank you, Wing. Uh, another question on uh, related to the hotel reef uh, terms of the forbearance agreements. Uh, yeah, they, it's. Uh, I guess it was wide ranging, uh, but to start the um, after Ashford decided to not pay, um, the they had mentioned that the average agreement that they were uh, receiving was um, non-payment for about six months, and then beginning uh, at the end of the six-month period, they have to start paying interest again, plus, the accrued interest um, over an extended period. Uh, Since then, they've, um, they've entered into more forbearance agreements, um, including pushing out um, uh, pushing out maturities um, on on those agreements in exchange for paying um, from what was um, what was due. Um, Kevin um this one is, uh, is for you uh question is how does cmbs debt complicate reit restructurings
3: well it it complicates the the consent um the consent issue because you have um you have very strict consent rules in most cmbs documents but the, they're generally regularized um it, it's it's just another one of those issues where how do you herd cats and how do you keep um, I'm gonna completely mix a metaphor here. How do you keep the fox out of the hen house? How do you um, organize and and achieve the level of consent that's necessary without someone jumping in, um, buying some, in this case, securities and mucking up the situation in in order to extract hostage value? And and that's you know, that that can be considerably easier to do. And CMBS, of course, the trustees have a an intervening layer and and you'd have to look at the individual um, CMBS deal, but it, it, it would presumably make it even more difficult for one of these companies to restructure, which is maybe why we haven't seen um, REITs that own office towers file. Um, that, that is extraordinarily rare. Um, and, and it may be because of that, and it, it may also be the same for you know condo and, and, and um, residential buildings, apartment buildings. So yeah, it's it's a complicating factor, and and we may never see commercial building filings for that reason. Great. Um, there are a couple of other
4: questions, but um, we touched on in in prior answers about um, the uh, guarantees that um, that. Washington Prime received as part of the amendment in August Wing and touched on that, that um, the the partial um, guarantees um, related to the uh, the the NOI and then um, Kevin touched on the CMBS lenders, but um, if and those are the the only questions that we see, so if those did not answer um, those those questions, please uh, reach out to to your salesperson and we will. um, We will follow up. Um, you could also reach out to send an email to success at reorg.com or reach out to, uh, to any of us um, directly. Uh, so that is all the time or uh, all the questions that uh, that we have. And then in turn, all the time that we have uh, for today's uh, webinar is a reminder, reorg is a global provider of credit intelligence, data and analytics for law firms, investors and advisors. If you are already a reorg subscriber, Please send any further questions you have on this or other topics. Again, that email address is at reorg.com. Remember, a replay with slides will be available on the Reorg Media page within 24 hours. A big thanks to everyone who joined us today, as well as our panelists, Kevin and Wing. Thank you, everyone, and have a great day.
0: Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com media page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great Memorial Day, and see you next
1: Sunday.